Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway. Dr. Larry Arn is with me because that music means the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. The last radio hour of my week every week is Friday in the third hour when I talk with Dr. Arn about things that are important and lasting. Usually, uh, occasionally we break for current events. Not today. Today we're breaking for the events of 1787. The Federalist Papers, number 10. But before I tell you that, all things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. You can sign up for free for Imprimus, which may be the largest free newsletter in the world, uh, as far as I can tell, unless Putin's putting one out and making people read it. Uh, Imprimus is a voluntary action, but you can get it for free over at hillsdale.edu. And all of these dialogues going back almost uh, eight years now are collected at qforhillsdale.com and at iTunes and Spotify. Uh, Dr. Arndt, so that the audience knows our plan, we're going to try something new next week. Uh, your, your old major domo, Kyle, and I have been plotting. We so like the course on ethics that he produced that we are going to edit it slightly and roll it out on the next, I think, 10 episodes of the Hillsdale Dialogue so that people watching on the Salem News Channel, who now number in the tens of thousands, can watch that course and become addicted to it. And so all your show ponies are going to get a chance to show off when we give them the entire ethics course. And then you get the summer off, of course, from having to talk to me. Okay, great. You and Kyle, you're running things. <laughs> he doesn't talk to you about these things? Uh, not much. Not much. <laughs> he, he's my boy. He, he, he can do what he wants. He's a fabulous guy. He's writing his Ph.D. thesis on the COVID shutdown in Michigan. Yeah, see, he's a, Kyle is a talent, right? And he, yes. I, and so I've got designs on him. And so it's a very bad idea to make anybody get a Ph.D., but I am making Kyle get one. And uh, because I said, you're just going to be a fully operational Death Star if you do that. I actually put the point to him. I said, he worked in my office for five years. He's really yeah, he's great. A great assistant. And I said, you got to go. And he said, go. I said, yeah, you can't just keep working here. And he said, why? And I said, I can't be ruining your life. And he said, what am I going to do? And I said, well, you can move around the college and you can aim to be a VP of the college somewhere. There are a couple of guys who've done that. Or you could get a PhD in the world as your oyster. And he said, can I think about it? And so he goes away for a week, and he comes back, and he says, I've thought about it, and I've prayed about it, and I've talked to my wife, and I don't think I can get a Ph.D. at this stage of my life. And I said, well, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> and he said, so there weren't two choices. And I said, of course not. I'm surprised you thought there were. <laughs> and now he's nearly finished, and he's, you know, he's a talent. And he's got- oh, I talked to him at great length about the, uh, the ethics project, and... And the, the tackling the shutdown is a very important thing. That could be a book as well, and it could, it could prevent the country from making a series of mistakes that were gravest in Michigan. I really do think they were gravest in Michigan. And that brings us to Federalist 10, because every state got to choose their own poison during the shutdown with some parameters. And we were probably better off that way than if anyone, and I don't think anyone could even argue 
that would have been better if Tony Fauci had run every state his way. Uh, and so that brings us to Federalist 10. Do you want to set this up? What is going on in 1787 when he writes Federalist 10? Well, uh, the Constitution of the United States has been written in the summer of 1787 by the Constitutional Convention, Chairman George Washington, uh, most active members, probably Madison and Hamilton, but there were others who were important. And, uh, and so then Hamilton and Madison and John Jay, uh, important man in American history, uh, they decide to write some essays uh, under the title Publius, who was the Roman uh, who was famous for caution and deliberation and, and, above all, winning victories and then giving up power. And, uh, and so he, they, they wrote these essays. Uh, they were published in New York, mainly. It's not clear uh, how much they had to do with the victory in the election, the ratification of the Constitution, which was done through state conventions. Uh, but what is clear is that they give us our greatest commentary on the Constitution of the United States, and it's, it, it's, it's, it's not necessary, but it's also written by the people who wrote it. So it's a tremendous resource, and it's and, one of America's great contributions to political thought. And of all the Federalist Papers, which we have covered before, probably and justly the most famous is number 10. 51 is important, 78 matters to me because it's Hamilton on the judiciary. But the key, if I can summarize so we can talk about it in the terms of friendship, uh, it begins to the people of the state of New York. Among the numerous advantages promised by a well-constructed union, none deserves to be more accurately developed than its tendency to break and control the violence of faction. Skip a little bit. And he says in the three key paragraphs, there are two methods of curing the mischiefs of faction, the one by removing its causes, the other by controlling its effects. There are, again, two methods of removing the causes of faction. The one by destroying the liberty, which is essential to its existence. The other by giving to every citizen the same opinions, the same passions, and the same interests. It could never be more truly said than of the first remedy that it was worse than the disease. Liberty is to faction what air is to fire, an ailment without which it instantly expires. But it could not be less folly to abolish liberty, which is essential to the political life. Because if it nourishes faction, then it would be the wish, the annihilation of air, which is essential to animal life, because it imparts to fire its destructive agency. Damned if we do and damned if we don't. So where does he, where does he take that argument, Dr. Arnon? I'm going to tell you what I think it has to do with friendship, is that you can't count on friendship. Uh, okay, that's fair. Uh for that to be a final judgment, it has to take account of the fact that uh, uh, the argument, uh, let me state it, just state it in positive terms, then we'll read the passages. Uh, so it sounds like what he's saying is the way we keep the nation secure is we multiply so many factions that they're all fighting against each other all the time, and none can get a majority. And that's the solution to the Federalist Papers, to, to, the, to the problem of free government. That's why the Constitution is great. great. That's what it, what it does. Well, I don't think that's even the final argument of Federalist 10, and certainly not of the Federalist in, in general, right? And a key to that 
is here in Federalist 10. Now, it's certainly true, by the way, that your, your thesis that friendship cannot be the organizing staple of a government, especially in a modern government where it's big, right? People don't know each other. That's certainly true. But uh, it is true, though, that leadership matters, and leaders, statesmen, can be friends, which you said last week, and I think it's true. Uh, and then it, uh, let me find the passage here in this thing. And as he looks, I, I will remind people, we go all the way back to the Aristotelian definition of friendship. We move up through Cicero and Montaigne, and now we're at Madison 10. Did you find your passage? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, he carries on the argument from which you were reading. By faction, I understand the number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or minority of the whole, or united or actuated by some common impulse of passion or interest adverse to the rights of other citizens. So, an adverse to the permanent and aggregate interest of the community. Right? The community being the entire United States. That's right. And that means that right there, you control faction in the interest of something that's beyond faction. It's not just all the factions swirling around and none of them becoming so powerful that we cancel each other out. The object is the service of the permanent and aggregate interest of the community, and that means the interests that last and the interests that cover us all. And so right here in this essay, uh, early in the essay, Madison points beyond faction to some good that can secure the community. And so the solution is not just to uh, cancel out the factions and to to uh, uh, latent causes of faction or so. And so, you know, since I'm doing this, uh, I will say that if you read the whole scheme of the Federalist Papers, you do find a sublime book. And in 51, he, 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 he talks about how they've organize the power powers so that they, they check each other. But right? they're not going to depend upon a community of philosopher kings. We'll continue this when we come back from the break. Federalist 10 on the table. Madison's great. Uh, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Don't go anywhere. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hilldale Dialogue is underway. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. We are talking the last, the last uh, segment that we have done on friendship, and we spent nine or ten weeks on it, and we're wrapping up on Federalist 10 because of friendship. There is nothing in Federalist 10, but it's written by one of the many great patriots who bonded together. Joseph Ellis calls them a brotherhood of, of, of sorts, a friendship of sorts. Uh, Dr. Arn, going all the way back to Plato, his ideal city is ruled by the guardians, right? The philosopher kings. Yeah. Are they friends? Uh, yes. Because they share in common the contemplation of the best things, right? Yeah, and they're not. And see, that's one reason, by the way, why they're not likely to be very good rulers. <laughs> <laughs> because 
they won't, right? They have something higher to do. And so they're very, you know, uh, Socratic philosophy, Socrates and his students, they're very concerned with the affairs of the city. And Xenophon was a statesman, uh, the only one of his close associates who was great at that, closest associates who was great at that. But they regarded the philosophic life as higher. And in the end, by the way, the city itself is in service of the philosophic life. It, you, you have to organize things so that the most excellent kind of life, which is the philosophic life, is protected. And there's a form of that that, uh, that, that works in America and in modern regimes, right? That uh, this whole thing of uh, freedom of speech and limited government, uh, uh, checks and balances, uh, you know, we, we, modern thought, you know, at least radical thought, it thinks all that's in the way, that that's uh, low, right? It cancels it out. We've got to get going here, right? And what that does is it turns uh, uh, the good into a project that can yeah. be devised and impl- implemented with power. And the people who think they are the philosopher, okay, this is what has always struck me about the function and practicality of the Federalist Papers, the genius of it, is that they were not, they did not aim for the end of having a perfect union. They wanted a more perfect union. And they weren't considering themselves philosopher kings. So, in fact, they were philosophers and they were very good philosophers. And they didn't want to run the country. Because if I can put forward a proposition aligned with this, the problem in Washington, D.C. today, the great disease is that a group of friends became a faction, the people who live inside the Beltway, and they aligned with another faction, the people who run the media in, in New York, the news media, and they created an overclass. And that overclass is the antithesis of the Federalist Papers. So friendship actually led to the disease. They all go out together. They social, It's Martha's Vineyard in the summer, and it's inimical to this Federalist tan, Larry Arn. Well... Yes, but that's not friendship for the reason that's apparent in Montaigne or ought to be apparent. <laughs> and that is, they ask people, they ask each other, they are united in the doing of unjust things, right? And that can't be stable. That's not friendship, right? It's driven by interest, and those interests are very powerful. But don't you notice the quality of this? of the ruling class in America, uh, it, it can't give an account of itself. Also, it moves in lockstep increasingly. That's, uh, and that's because it began in friendship, Larry. My, my, my point of view is becoming very cynical the longer I've had to move back to the Beltway. I'll save it, my, my Jeremiah, <laughs> for afterwards. But I'm becoming very cynical about the people who are running our government. I don't think there's a deep state. I just think there is an entitled wholly out-of-control group of elites that want to run my life. and uh, well, That's just a synonym for a deep state, right? Well, no, deep states knock on the door and take you away. That's my, my big distinction. We haven't gotten there yet, thank God. Well, uh, we've, got, it, it, we've got some forms of that. We do. Ha- I mean, the COVID stuff ought to have woken a lot of people up as to what the state can do when it wants. We'll come back more on... 
what we're trying to get back to, the way back. Federalist 10. It's not friendship. It's actually controlling faction, and the faction we have to control the most is in D.C. Dr. Larry Arnold will return. Just stay tuned. America. I'm Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Arn in our penultimate segment on friendship. Dr. Arn, friendships grow up in places like Silicon Valley and in Hollywood and in Manhattan and in Washington, D.C., and they reinforce each other's sense of entitlement and privilege. And they reinforce in each other their guardian philosopher sort of view of the world. And that distorts the country. That's my basic proposition. Hillsdale's out there in the middle of nowhere, Michigan, producing people who aren't who are not taking over Washington, D.C. I mean, you're, I, I always tell people you're the most influential conservative they've never heard of unless they listen to my show or go to Hillsdale or read in Primus. But <laughs> you're read pr- the New Republic. Or the, oh, yes, when they attack you, but nobody reads the New Republic. <laughs> I'm not going to ask anybody to read that rag. Uh, the, the, the question becomes, you're trying to produce people who are not going to come and try and take over. The rest of the elite institutions are, and they're all friends. Well, they're not, they're friends of utility, right? That's a lower kind of friendship. The higher kind of friendship is the love that is born in the best souls of things that are eternal, right? And, and they're, you know, the passion for rule is often at odds with that, right? And so these are people who are useful to each other. They, they get to work their enterprise. And they, and they get to remake everything in their image. And that's not friendship because it, there's no uh, reflection in it. There's no thought in it anymore. It's mostly just ranting. And uh, uh, so when, when do they sit down? I mean, I, I value the life of the college very much because I, I lead a very active life. You know, I got a college to run and blah, blah, blah. And on the other hand, there's nothing like teaching, right? You sit down with a bunch of people with a great text, and you have responsibilities to them and they to me, and you read that text and you let it talk to you. And that is civilizing, and it teaches you that everything is not a project uh, fueled through power. And that's what's wrong with the ruling class in America. They think they can fix the world. You know, the latest thing, very dangerous, is the Great Reset, right? And that's a bunch of smarty pants from many countries, lots of billionaires, lots of tech people, China, lots of European administrators, and they get together and they plan the future of the world. And, you know, their, their plan, by the way, it looks to me like, in one way it's even worse than the conspiracy of the Bolsheviks, because their idea was, if we just take everybody's rights away and subject them to the dictatorship of the proletariat, then there'll be a leap into freedom and everybody can have whatever they want. That's Marx, right? Yes. The new thing is, we human beings are just using too much stuff up, and we've got to stop it. And that means everything's got to be allocated for the purpose of consuming less, right? And that means it's a, it, and you know, they're, they're not very good as a class, at consuming less, you know, they fly to Davos and stuff like that, and they live in big fancy houses and stuff like that. And and uh, but their their idea is that we've gone too far 
with this global economy of opportunity, and it's going to destroy the globe. And we're the ones who understand that, and we're going to get the power to stop it. And whenever you hear the word great, raise your eyebrows and be on guard. Because uh, I've, I've had occasion this week for writing something to research the Great Leap Forward. Mao's project, 1958 to 1962, intended to produce an abundance from which the Chinese peasantry could flourish, and which resulted in the starvation deaths of 45 million people over four years. Whenever anyone says great, run, because they are not going to do anything on your behalf. That's it. They're not. And, it, you know, I mean, what is the tone of it? Uh, it's, it's all we're the ones who see and we're going to make everybody else do what we want. And, and, and some holding of contempt of the people who are going to be compelled. Yes, it's got to be contemptuous. Wasn't there contempt in the philosophers of of Socrates' perfect city? Didn't they have, uh, maybe they felt grace towards them, but there was some contempt mixed in there that they were below them. Well, there's a joke in there too, though, right? I mean, Socrates himself did not, would not agree to rule anything. And Plato, as a young man, got all mixed up in politics in Syracuse, and he was supposed to be really good at it, and be a very ambitious young man with a philosophic friend who was in the royal, the leading family of Syracuse. And the effect of his efforts was he got arrested and sold into slavery. <laughs> he wasn't very good at it. No. And, and, uh, and his friends had to bail him out, right? And then he discovered... You know, and in the letter in which he describes that, it's called the seventh letter, he, he talks about Socrates and how that was the greatest thing he ever saw. And that he says, no one will ever be able to reproduce the conversations in which Socrates' teaching is to be found. But if it could be done, I would be the one to do it. Huh? And then he invents the dialogue. The dialogue. And those are, you know, those are just reproductions of those conversations by somebody who understood them deeply. And And how much do you think the Federalist Papers are discussed among the authors and reflect the conversation? I mean, we don't have tape recording. We have Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, which are fairly, they're amazing, actually, uh, for the detail with which little Jimmy, as he was called, detailed them down. So here is Madison writing 10 don't you think it's the echo of those conversations that we've got a problem on our and and arguments and fist not fist flying but the windows are shut it smells to high heaven it's 120 degrees Ben Franklin's nodding off George Washington's saying nothing and people are yelling at each other and Madison's writing it all down and in the end comes out Federalist 10 and it's it's a humble humble bit of work we can't do anything except arrange what we know to be true to contend against each other. Well, humble, but also extremely assertive. And I uh, question your uh, characterization of the spirit of that thing, right? They were three and a half months behind closed doors with the windows closed. And it was hotter than heck. Stinky, stinky. And they they, uh, disagreed about everything. And then they made an agreement. And then very effectively, they went and defended that agreement in the state constitutional convention, ratifying conventions. And they were decisive in the difficult states, Madison in Virginia, 
Hamilton in New York, and and they and so in other words, they came together, they argued things through, they defended it honorably. They then occupied the highest stations in the union, and they you know they fought like cats and dogs in those stations, but in the end, their esteem for each other was never uh, destroyed. It, you know. Uh, my wise friend Tom West always says, it's easy to exaggerate the differences among the founders. Well, wait a minute. Hamilton wants to raise a, wants to raise a hand as he's dying on the plains of New Jersey or wherever Burr shot him and say it came down to brass. That Burr is a rogue, though. He's not he's yeah. not in the Constitutional Convention, but he's around. Uh, Hamilton gave a three and a half hour speech, right, that verged on calling for monarchy. Do you think the room was quiet that day? Uh, he was never calling for monarchy. He got close. Limited monarchy. There you go. <laughs> right. And that's, that means, and you know, that's a legitimate form of government. And, well, sure. And what they came out with, by the way, is much better than that. Because, you know, Madison's argument in The Federalist is, Every, uh, all authority is drawn from what he calls the great body of the people. That means lots of people, most people, ones we don't know, have to be involved in the decisions. And so there are many ways in which, uh, under the Constitution, legitimacy is conferred by the people, and they differ from one body to the other, from the House to the Senate to the President, Supreme Court's indirect, but coming from those places, and then in the states, right, in other words, there's more than one way of doing it, but they all have in common that they are drawn from the great body of the people. So that monarchy thing, that, you know, that's, uh, in other words, I don't think myself that Alexander Hamilton ever said anything different from what Thomas Jefferson said in the, in the 1774 Summary Views of the Rights of British North America. The last paragraph is very beautiful and strong, and he says, uh, Let those flatter who fear, sire. It is not an American art. <laughs> Isn't, that, you know, isn't that a way to... And then he goes on to say that your ministers have to understand that they are servants, right? And that means the king himself is a servant. And, and so I don't think anybody in the American Revolution disagreed with that. Can we send that round to every member of Congress and the, and the executive branch right now? Because yeah, well, and, you is, know, yeah, if we could just do that and then get them to spend three or four years studying so they understood it, then we'd be there. <laughs> okay. When we come back, a final a, a summary uh, segment coming up on uh, what's been 10 weeks on friendship. Does it actually matter in political life? We'll talk. We'll hear what Dr. Arn thinks about that question, friendship and the political life when we return. It's the end of the semester. The professor looks at his or her watch at six minutes to go and realizes that they ought to put a bow on it. Uh, this has been 10 weeks on friendship, maybe 12. What say you, doctor, and what's the bow on that? Well, friendship uh, is, first of all, a sublime relationship properly understood that everyone should seek, and that means they have to qualify themselves for it, too. They have to become excellent people. And as it works in politics, there are many examples of it. 
uh, you've named a couple. I'll name uh, the Reagan administration. Ah. You know, the, the Reagan everything was divisive. The government is very big today and very hard to control. And on the other hand, scattered around in the Reagan administration were people who kept faith with Reagan, and they had known him and worked with him from the beginning of their careers. The foremost of them is Ed Meese, Attorney General, right? And and that guy, you know, he he Reagan could depend on him, like Tom Clark as well, an old guard Californian. Yeah, and they and see, they they those friendships. You know, I happen to know Ed Meese very well, bless his soul, and. Uh, those are not predicated on them being prepared to do anything wrong for each other because they were not prepared to do anything wrong, see? And that, that's very important, and you need that. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, uh, when the story of the Trump administration is written, it'll, it'll be very important to understand that he was brand new to all of this, that Everybody with experience in the executive branch who was a Republican had worked for the Bushes, and the Bushes were hostile to him, and he didn't have friends to, oh, you know. He arrived without friends. Dan Quayle is a wonderful man, a friend of mine, and uh, he once told me what it's like in the White House, in the president, in the the Oval Office, and he says, it's a soul-destroying thing because you spend long days having meetings where huge things are presented to you and and you you know and you have to decide and he he thought George H.W. was worthy in part because he didn't commonly kick the can down the road which is a, 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 a temptation and then he said I said and he said you can never have more than three or four people there and I said why so few and he said leaks you can't trust people. And I said, have they no friends? And he said, Larry, you would have friends, and I would have friends, but they have not lived their life so as to have them. And that's a problem, right? How do you form, an, you know, first of all, the permanent parts of the executive branch are so much bigger and arrogate such power to themselves that, and, you know, you get one or two or three, I think there are three political appointees in the Center for Disease Control. I've heard somebody right. say may, maybe only one, right? And how do you control that thing? Uh, you know, I will tell you that the wisest, most experienced, he's very young, uh, my student Paul Ray, who was a, a clerk for Alito in the past, he was the regulatory czar for two years and in the, Reagan, in the Trump administration. And he has got very detailed thoughts about how you organize the law without a revolution so the bureaucracy works again for elected. And that's a, that, that is a high criteria of success in the future. Well, I also think, uh, my beau, is if you're going to be in power, you'd better bring along some friends. And, and I think of the Kirby Center cigar floor where people sit up there, young and old, and they... They are friends. And you'd better not. That's actually a very good place to end. If you're going to be in power, you'd better have some people with whom you can speak candidly and who can, if necessary, rebuke or guide or advise, or you're going to be unhappy and you're not going to be very good at it. 
if you, that's a very good point. You should have been talking about this the whole hour. Uh, the friendship needs to be formed around thought, and the thoughts need to be formed around something wider than just public policy. See, in other words, at the Kirby Center, they're reading, and here, right, they're reading great books. Yep. Uh, this Paul Ray that I mentioned, he's an English major, right? I always called him the little English nerd. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's turned out to be a dynamo. And uh, he took the LSAT on a lark. Some friends were going to go take it and have dinner after. Oh, and I he, hate these people. And he wanted to spend the day with them. And he aced it. You, you got know. a 180. Yeah, and, I hate you know, these people. And, and I said, you know, I said later, I said, wow, Paul, I said, did you ACA? He said, well, I did pretty well, Dr. Arden. I said, did you cheat? He said, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't figure out how. And, and then, you know, he was going to go to Duke. So he could go in the South, and I wouldn't let him go. I made him go to Harvard because it's tops, right, or Yale. And, uh, and, yeah, so in other words, that kind of friendship. He's just written an essay all about the doctrine of subsidi- subsidiarity and the bureaucracy. Oh, he's a good Catholic man. I'll tell yeah, you what. We'll come back when we interrupt our ethics course, and we'll talk about the kind of friends you need along the way. Uh, more of a... Uh, untethered conversation, but one that could go anywhere. Dr. Larry Arn has been my guest. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.